Hi, everyone. This is the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That is God's word. Uh, would you bow your hands with me one more time? Now let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God, we are in awe of your mercy and grace towards us. Uh, none of us who are here in this room are here by accident. You have drawn uh, everybody here uh, near to you this day and that you're about to uh, speak to us through your word. God, would you send your Holy Spirit to open our hearts uh, to understand your word? Would you give us the appetite that we need to desire your word and desire you? God, may you use me right now as your uh, vessel, unworthy vessel, to deliver your word. May it be clear, and again, uh, may the, the hearers' hearts be open to your word. Help us, God. Gather all of our hearts right now, and may we get to worship you and your son um, because of your word right now. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we go any further, I have a question for you. The question is, what amazes you? Or differently put, what is a wonder to you? Uh, my answer to that uh, is when I visited the Grand Canyon. I think I have a picture up there. Uh, I visited Grand Canyon for the first time in high school. And when I was there, I, I couldn't believe my eyes. How many of you have been there in person? Oh, a number of you. I couldn't believe my eyes. It was so big, and I really felt that the name was so fitting. It, it was really a grand canyon. I was so amazed. So that's my answer to the question, you know, what amazes you? Uh, but what about you all? You know, what has been an amazing experience to you? Now, another question I'd like to ask us is, is your daily life uh, filled with a sense of wonder, sense of amazement? I think some of you may say yes, but others of us, possibly many, uh, might say no. For you, 
your daily life has been you know, filled with not wonder, but with stress, boredom, mundaneness, even sadness. I want to ask you these questions right now before we go any further, because today's passage touches on the topic of having a sense of wonder. And my hope and prayer is that God would speak through this passage right now to help us regain that sense of wonder in our lives, especially through Jesus Christ. Now, one more primer before we delve right into the passage. I want to encourage us, as we look at this passage, to um, have a sense of imagination, because uh, this passage is written by Apostle Paul to the church in Colossae in order to unpack a, a rich teaching about the person of Jesus Christ. And we'll see that the teaching is so rich that he had to express it with poem because he couldn't find any other uh, medium for this occasion. And because this is poem, we need that imagination. And when I say imagination, I don't mean imagination for fictional things, but imagination for uh, grand, unseen things. We need that in order to really appreciate this passage the way we should. So let's have that lens, so to speak, as we uh, read this passage and study this passage. Uh, I have two points for us, and this is, again, poem, and very structured poem, and, and Paul indeed has two main things to talk about. And those two are the supremacy of Christ over all creation, and second, the supremacy of Christ of the new creation. So let's jump right in. First, the supremacy of Christ over all creation. Look with me uh, to verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God. He here is, of course, Jesus Christ. The word there, image, is a translation of a Greek word, icon, from which we get our English word, icon. If you go to the next slide, uh, these are some of the icons that we may find on our phones. Gmail, YouTube, and even Snapchat that I used to have when I was a youth pastor to, to relate to my youth children. Or uh, students, not children. <laughs> uh, ever since I erased it. But anyways, these are icons that we find on our phones. And, and these images, icons, you know, effectively show what the apps are about, right? And Paul is saying Jesus is image, like icon, that shows and reveals who God is and what he's like. But of course, Unlike these icons, uh, Jesus does better than that. You know, he, uh, we can know some deeper things about who God is when we study Jesus. But he is the image of the invisible God. So when we see in this, the rest of the passage, we will uh, get to see how God is revealed, how God's character is revealed uh, as a creator king through Jesus. So let's go on. In the rest of verse 15, it says, 
Jesus is the firstborn of all creation. The word firstborn might make some of us feel a little nervous. Um, At first glance, it may look like it is suggesting that Jesus is a first creature, firstborn, and not a creator God as Christians believe. In fact, a heretical group uh, called Jehovah's Witnesses used this very word and passage to assert that Jesus has indeed been created. I'll explain in a moment for you uh, what this this word actually means. But even without that, contextually, if you read through the the passage, um, you'll see that Jesus could not have been created. Because in verse 16, for example, uh, Paul, Paul proclaims that all things, meaning nothing excluded, were created in Jesus through him and for him. And verse 17 says, He's before all things. So we get that even without knowing what the word firstborn means. But here's what it means. The word firstborn is a technical Old Testament term. Uh, That means a person of a preeminent rank. So we look at Psalm 89, 27. It says, I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. The passage is prophesying about the coming Messiah, and it calls him the firstborn, and then explains that it means the greatest king of the world. And now we see in this passage in Colossians that this title, firstborn, is bestowed upon Jesus the Messiah who came. And further, our passage says he is the firstborn of all creation. So this whole verse is calling Jesus the most supreme king of the whole universe, not a first creature in any sense. And now the following two verses will go on and explain why Jesus is the supreme king over all creation. So we look at verse 16, it says, For by him all things were created. There's a phrase, by him, can also be translated in him. That's why in the ESV Bible, there's a footnote uh, saying that it could be translated as in him. What this means is that God created all things in, in the realm or in the sphere of influence of Jesus. In other words, everything that has been created owes their existence to Jesus. Nothing escapes his influence. God the Father created absolutely nothing apart from Jesus. That's what it means. And to make his point even clearer, Paul now goes on to list what the all things mean you know, that has been created in Jesus. So let's look at these four things. First, things in heaven. What that is, is apparently there are 
at least 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe. That means there are much more than 100 billion. But in the observable universe, there are 100 billion galaxies. And each of the galaxies, as you know, contains numerous stars and planets. And Paul is saying they were all created in Jesus, in the realm of Jesus. Things on Earth. This includes Mount Everest, as well as the 10,000 lakes in Minnesota. They're all created in Jesus. And things visible, this refers to humans like you and I, uh, as well as all kinds of animals and plants. They're all created in Jesus. Things invisible can, can be things like the atoms and the molecules. And he also says the thrones or dominions and rulers or authorities, uh, these are basically the, the technical terms uh, describing the invisible spiritual beings like you know, angels and demons. Uh, perhaps these are the things that um, science cannot explain. Even these things were created in the realm of Jesus. So all that to say, absolutely all things in the universe have been created in the sphere of Christ. But that's not all there is about Christ. So Paul goes on saying, all things were created through him and for him. What that means is that Jesus is not just a mere sphere of influence, but he is also the cause through the cause of all creation. Everything started because of him. But he's also not just cause, but goal of all creation, the word for, for him. Meaning all creation moves towards Jesus and finds the fullest meaning of their existence in Jesus. In fact, the whole history is moving towards him to find its culmination. We'll talk about that in a moment, but Jesus is the goal of all creation. And then finally, Paul says in verse 17, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. I mean, he's, of course, before all things, you know, he eternally existed before anything came into being, and he existed even before there was time. And also, all things hold together. The phrase there means that, you know, Jesus didn't create all things and took his hands off. No. He, even now as we speak, keeps all things together and make sure that the creation continues to exist and function. That's why a commentator, Douglas Moo, says, without him, without Jesus, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work. Planets would not stay in their orbits. All that to say, Paul is declaring again through this poem 
with all of his heart that as the creator and the sustainer and the goal of all creation, Jesus Christ is absolutely supreme over the whole universe. Jesus is so grand. He's so big. And that's the wonder of Jesus Christ. You know, what do we do when we encounter a passage like this? I think the, the natural consequence has to be that it should humble us. Because the reality is that, you know, instead of Jesus being grand in our lives, aren't we, aren't I or you so grand in our view, in our uh, in our view, in our, in our mind. For example, let me illustrate this way. And I always find it interesting um, when I take the airplane and the, the plane takes off and it rises high above the ground. You know, I start seeing things with a different perspective. You know, out the windows, all the big objects such as, you know, houses, and tall buildings you know, start looking small. And of course, at that point, you know, I can't spot any humans. They're just you know, invisible dots. You, know, you all will look like the small dots or not even that. That's what happens when you're you know, risen above uh, the ground and, and see things in different perspective. And I think this passage is basically taking us above the ground for us to see things the way they are. Meaning, you know, when we are on the ground, so to speak, in our daily lives, you know, our lives are all about ourselves. You know, it's all about, we're so consumed with our needs and, you know, my wants. You know, we are so big. And we call that pride. You know, pride it's not just for the prideful, haughty people who love themselves and who are so confident about what they can do with their abilities. But pride can also include people who are insecure and timid, right? You know, they're prideful too because you know, all their concerns and anguish are all about themselves. You know, they, they, they ask, they, they moan, think things like, you know, I don't like who I am. You know, I, I don't like what I am not capable of. It's all about me. That's pride. But when we take the airplane, so to speak, and when we have different perspective, and when we get to take our eyes off of ourselves, and when we see Jesus and his wonder, we start thinking differently. When we are mesmerized by his grandness, you know, we start seeing ourselves as small dots or not even that. And things start falling into places because we realize what really matters in life is Jesus, not us. He is the focal point and the center of the universe and our lives. When that's misaligned, our lives falter. 
the question I want to ask us this, as we, again, follow along the logic of Paul. The question is, you know, is Jesus supreme over every area of your life? In other words, is Jesus the Lord over your work, over your school, over your family, of relationships, and even over church? For example, is your performance at work and the promotion that you want, is it about proving your worth, or is it about being faithful to Jesus and showing his worth? Or for for those of us who are in school who are considering future careers, is it about what you want and achieving your dreams, or is it about being used by God for his kingdom in the callings that he has called us or he is calling us to? And questions like this apply to me too. You know, as a father and as a pastor, I have to ask these questions all the time. You know, is what I do in family and church, is it about proving my worth or is it about Jesus and making his name great in my life? We're in this together, and this question has to be asked every single day. Because the fact of the matter is Jesus is the one who is absolutely supreme over all creation. Everything is about us. Oh, it's, it's about Jesus. See, I've sinned. <laughs> Even right now. It's all about him. It is not about me or you. He is the focal point. The supremacy of Jesus over all creation. Second, the supremacy of Jesus over the new creation. So we we got that Jesus has to be the, the absolutely supreme person over all creation. He's the king. But the pride that we just talked about Uh, indicates that the creation is not the way it's supposed to be, right? Meaning, we and all creation are supposed to, you know, uh, submit themselves to Christ's rule, but we see the pride indicates that we are being rebellious towards the creator. And we see that all around us, you know, we, we see wars. I mean, even, I don't know if you've been following the news, but there is a war right now that has been de- declared in Israel, right? Many people are dying, as, even as we speak. There are wars, terrorism, injustice of every kind. And the list goes on and on to the point that, like, honestly, I don't even look at my news app these days because there's so much going on. And every single one of them are depressing, to be honest. But that's more macro level. But what about our individual lives, our you know, human lives? Is that perfect? Is that way, the way things are supposed to be? You know, we go through, I don't know about you, but you know, we all go through mistakes, disappointments of every kind. 
and sometimes even pain and sicknesses. And that the pinnacle of all is death in human life. The creation is not the way it's supposed to be. It's not submitting to Christ's rule. And perhaps, maybe that's why, or, or maybe it's more natural that we don't have a wonder, sense of wonder in our lives because there's sin. Things are not the way it's supposed to be. But as we're about to see in this passage, the gospel we believe in says that there's a remedy for this. Jesus, the king of all creation, came into this broken, rebellious creation to restore all things and make them anew so that the creation would be back to what it's supposed to be. And what's astounding here is this, that at the center of the new creation of Jesus Christ is none other than the church. The church, the group of people who have been made anew by Jesus. So with that in mind, we turn to verse 18. It says, Jesus is the head of the body, the church. Jesus is the head, meaning the leader of the church. And the church here is referring to the universal church. You know, the Christians all around the world and our church CLC is a part of it. And what this means is that you know, just as our physical head, physical head commands and sustains the rest of the body, likewise, Jesus guides and also sustains the church, his body, so that it will survive and thrive. He's the head. And then we go on to verse 18, the rest of the verse. It says, he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. What this means is he's beginning, or better, a founder. You know, he's the one who started the new creation through the church. And the way he started, the way he founded the new creation through the church is astounding. Here, the word firstborn, again, means a supreme being. We saw that earlier. But in this context, you know, where Jesus is called to be the beginning, that the word, I think, more specifically, refers to him being supreme because he did something first as a pioneer. That's why he's supreme. And that thing that he did as a first person is none other than resurrection. That he's the first one to rise again from the dead, never to die again, so that people who follow him will also experience the resurrection life like Jesus. So he's the pioneer. That's why he's supreme. He's the one who began this process. And the people who follow him, who experience the resurrection life, is the church, you see. Church is the people who have been made anew so that death no longer has the last word anymore. People who believe in Jesus now look for the eternal life. In other words, 
in the church, the creation that was destined to death is now that the course has been overturned in church. The church is microcosm of what God is doing in all around the world, you see. In church, no longer death reigns, but Christ reigns. In church, Christ is the king, as he should be in all world. So we look at verse 18, the, the rest of the verse, where it says that in everything, he might be preeminent. He's supreme. Why? Because in church, through the gospel, he defeated death and sin and started a new creation where he is being honored and obeyed. So whenever Christians, by the power of the Holy Spirit, conquer sin and start obeying Christ in all areas of their lives, Jesus is being lifted up as a supreme king. That's why he can be preeminent in the church and in the new creation. And when Jesus comes back, his rule right now is incomplete because of remaining sin in, in us and in the, the, in the whole wide world. But when Jesus comes back, his rule will be consummated. His rule will be the reality. No more exception. Every knee shall bow before him and adore him as a king, even viruses. That's why we see in Revelation 21.4, it says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. The victory and honor and praise on that day will belong to Jesus and him alone. All his enemies will bow down to him, and his people will bow down to him gladly, whereas the enemies will be subjugated against their will. And now follow with me. Uh, for the remainder of this passage, uh, I believe Paul is further, as if it's not, it has been enough for us to appreciate who Jesus is in order for us to praise him. He's going to give us a little more, few more reasons why we should praise Jesus as the king of the new creation. So we look at verse, eight, verse 19. It says, For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Why is, why is he supreme? You know, why and how could he accomplish what he did? Because Jesus is fully God. Just notice there in the, in the verse, you know, Paul cannot be more obvious and clear about what he's trying to say. There's a double full language, right? It says, all the fullness of God dwells in Jesus. He's fully God so that he could die for the sins of the world. And that's what verse 20 talks about. It says, And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, 
making peace by the blood of his cross. The reality, again, that we see over and over in the world and in our lives is that the creation in, his, is in rebellion is at war with the creator God. But Jesus does unthinkable. Instead of having the creation pay for their own rebellion, Jesus, the supreme king of the universe, stooped down, came to the broken creation. He became the sacrifice and payment for reconciliation. That's what the true king does. And being fully God again, he was able to pay for sins. He used his privilege for the good of others, sinners like you and I. And he died paying the full payment of our sins so that those who believe in Jesus will be reconciled to our King. And God no longer sees those who have been covered with the blood of Christ no longer as rebels, but as friends. Jesus did that. And we praise Him for it. Not only is He the Creator, but He is Savior, who tenderly loves each one of us. My goodness, our our King became, he became, became a servant. He died, bled for you and me. What greater love is there would you want to live for? I think one important thing as an application of this whole passage that we can get out is that we must be reconciled, therefore, to Christ. And and by that I mean, first of all, that in this room, if there are those of us who have not been um, made right with God by believing in Jesus, God is giving us loud and clear this message of reconciliation to you. May you not hesitate, but know this Christ, this lover who died for you. And may you be reconciled in the ultimate sense and become God's friends and adore him as, his, as your king. But I think this also applies to you know, those of us uh, who have already put their uh, trust in Christ. So you're objective, you have been objectively uh, reconciled with, with God through Christ. This applies because on this side of heaven, we still battle sin so that our daily lives, our subjective relationship has been marred and it needs restoration. Meaning, even those who are believers of Christ need reconciliation subjectively. For it says in Isaiah 59, 2, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. What I mean basically is that 
if you have lost the sense of wonder in Christ in your daily life, so that he's more of an object rather than a friend, you need this message. You need reconciliation, and we call that repentance. Unless there is genuine repentance, your view, your vision will always be clogged, and there will not be a sense of wonder that we should have. Let me illustrate this way. Uh, my wife and I moved to Minnesota uh, six years ago to join this church. Uh, before we came here, uh, we quit both of our jobs and ministry, and we decided to take a trip to the Grand Canyon again. Well, uh, like I said earlier, I had been there uh, in, in my high school years, but Deb hadn't, and I wanted to go back. So we you know, took the trip, and overall, it was a great trip. We, we, we loved you know, every minute of it. But I have to tell you that I did some strange things during the trip. Whenever we would stop during our hikes and try to you know, get a, a good view of the, the views, uh, the, you know, the, the sceneries of the canyon, and I would ask my wife this. I would say, hey, Dad, do you think those rocks and cliffs are natural? And she would go, what do you mean? I mean, the National Park Service could have sent some you know, construction workers, and, and they could have built those rocks and cliffs to make it touristy, to make money. That's possible, right? And she goes, are you crazy? Of course those are real. They're, they're natural. But, but I'll go, you never know. The technology is so great these days. You know, they, they might have built all these things in a matter of a few months and nobody noticed. And you know, they did it for the, the tourism, for the, the reasons of you know, money or whatever. That's possible. So I would keep you know, going and you know, bring these things up throughout the trip, and at some point, she just stopped responding to me. It's like, you know, kudos to her. And of course, I was half joking um, you know, when I was saying these things to her. I, I'm not that crazy. But I think part of me at the time uh, was really struggling, like genuinely, uh, to believe that what I was seeing with my eyes were really real. And I was really struggling to enjoy what I was seeing. And I think that's because I was consumed about other things at the time. Uh, and here are some of the things that, that were bogging me down. Like one, I had just stepped down from a ministry that I was in for three and a half years. It was a very wonderful ministry, but it was exhausting to, to be sure. And at the same time, you know, we had just moved to Minnesota, so I was trying to figure out all these, you know, logistical things like where to live and the insurance issues and like all these things. And it was stressful, you know, to say the least. And, and you see, because my devotion uh, during the trip was divided, I could not fully gaze at the beauty of the Grand Canyon 
and have a sense of awe at the, the absolute beauty as I did in, back in high school days. And I think that is basically what happens spiritually too. When our hearts are divided you know, because of our sins and idols, you know, we cannot fully gaze at the grandness and the beauty, absolute beauty of Christ or have any sense of you know, childlike wonder. I mean, I have two young children, you know, especially the younger one. You know, she's, she's turning one soon, and my goodness, she has such wonder about everything. She goes like, ooh, ooh. It is so cute, and it's so rebuking, because I'm not so like that. But can you imagine that we are created to have that kind of wonder about things around us, but ultimately to our Creator and Savior, Jesus Christ. When we look at Him, we go, oh, oh, my goodness. He loves me like that. That's astounding. Who am I? I'm this small dot or not even dot. I'm this dust and ashes, but God loves me so. How can it be? There has to be that wonder, but because our dividedness in, my, in our hearts, because we are not reconciled with God. We don't have that wonder. And I believe God is calling us through the passage to have our amazement restored. And some of us know what this feels like in this room. Some of us know, you've experienced, my goodness, the true joy and sweetness of the awe and wonder of Christ. Do you miss it? And guess what? When you get it back, we call that revival. When we get it back, tears will fall down because we realize we've been running in the wrong direction. The beauty has been all here in Jesus Christ. And I would long for that for our church. The wonder of Jesus Christ in our lives. Pray together. We'll respond to the Word of God with a song, and, and we'll pray and finish our service. But uh, right now, uh, can I encourage us to uh, silently pray, uh, meditate on what we just heard, and uh, simply ask God. You know, the point of this message for me at least, was not to just guilt trip you and saying things like, you know, do better. That's not my point. Rather, my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit would enter your heart and He ignite passion in you. He helps you to come back. Because that is Christian life. Religion says do better, but Christianity says rely 
on the power of God to turn you around. So I want to invite you to pray that right now. Just come as you are. Say, God, this is where I'm at, where I'm at right now spiritually. And you know that. But thank you for pursuing after me, even through this passage. Help me, Lord, to gaze upon you and enjoy you. Help me to come back. Because in the heart of my heart, I know that I'm resistant right now. Could you help me? Let's pray that simply, trusting in His mercy at this time. And we'll sing the song and go on in our service. Pray together.